Hello and welcome back to Hearsay, a joint project between Pro Bono Students Canada, University of Calgary Chapter, and CJSW 90.9 FM, where University of Calgary law students discuss a variety of legal topics with a variety of professionals in the field. We'd like to emphasize that the information you hear today is legal information and not legal advice, as we are law students and not lawyers. This podcast is purely for informational purposes. If you do require legal advice, please consult a lawyer. My name is Emily, and I'm here with my co-host Amanda. Today's episode is the second part of our interview with Justice David Gates and Jennifer Rutan to explore jury duty in Alberta and Canada. Justice Gates is the Deputy Judge in Yukon and Northwest Territories. He was also appointed to the Alberta Court of Queen's Bench in 2011 and retired earlier last year. He has presided over numerous jury trials in Alberta, Northwest Territories, and Yukon as a judge. Jennifer is a partner at Rutan Bates Barristers and Solicitors. Her practice is dedicated primarily to criminal defense work. She has extensive experiences in all levels of court, including the Supreme Court of Canada, administrative tribunals, judicial dispute resolution, and mediation. In the spirit of reconciliation, we'd first like to acknowledge that hearsay is recorded on Treaty 7 territory. We acknowledge that Treaty 7 territory is a traditional and ancestral territory of the Blackfoot Confederacy, consisting of the Kainai, Pekani, and Siksika, as well as the Tsutina Nation and Stony Nakoda First Nation. We acknowledge that this territory is home to the Métis Nation of Alberta, Region 3, within the historical Northwest Métis homeland. We acknowledge the many First Nations, Métis, and Inuit who have lived in and care for these lands for generations. We are grateful for the traditional knowledge keepers and elders who are still with us today and those who have gone before us. We make this acknowledgement as an act of gratitude for those whose territory we reside on or are visiting. Let's hear about the current issues surrounding jury duty, name, namely on uh, fairness and equity. So many express that jurors are not sufficiently compensated for upholding their duty. So for example, in Alberta, Jurors receive $50 per day. Do you think this is fair? And if or if not, how much do you think the jurors should be compensated? And it doesn't even have to be about how much money they get. This is the responsibility of the provincial government through the Juries Act. And it's their role to determine what fair compensation is for fulfilling this role. But again, it's not a job. And so the role is for the government to make that determination. Whether or not $50 meets current standards, I think, should be evaluated against what the minimum wage would be for an individual. Uh, so, for example, minimum wage at six hours a day would be around $90. So when you do that math, it seems like it may be an area that the government might want to revisit. We don't want financial strain to be the reason why a juror asks to be excused. That doesn't aid in the diversity of juries. And so one of the things that we haven't talked about yet is the ability for a juror to request not to serve on a jury due to personal circumstances, which can include economic hardship. 
And so it makes it more difficult for a judge to decline that as a valid excuse if the compensation is uh, that insignificant. So it is definitely a consideration that the government needs to keep mindful and keep up to date to current standards. Um, I agree that it, it is the government's decision. Um, it's part of uh, their legal responsibilities for the administration of justice in uh, this province. Um, I can say anecdotally that it is not uncommon for uh, self-employed individuals or individuals who work for small businesses or organizations who uh, do not compensate them uh, as they normally would while they're serving on a jury. It's very common for those people to ask to be excused. And as Jennifer points out, it's very hard to say no to uh, a, an individual, a single, a single parent, um, whose only source of income for their family comes from their job. And if they're not working, they won't get paid. They'll get $50 a day. Um, I, I can simply say that this is an issue that I would urge uh, the provincial government to continue to monitor uh, because it seems to me that that it does have an impact on the people who are who are practically able to serve on a jury at any given time. Right. We wouldn't want that financial barrier to right. restrict people from their duties. So in addition to the socioeconomic portion of it, so several news articles have also claimed that people wouldn't really want to participate in jury selection because there's that, rep- that lack of representation for underprivileged and racialized people as well. So what are your thoughts about it? Um, that's a hard question for me to answer. I, mean, I can tell you how we pick juries um, and we do our very best to make um, the jury panel, that is the group of people who are summoned for jury duty as representative as we can. Now the Jury Act allows for a, a number of ways for jurors or potential jurors to be selected. The process that we use in Calgary right now and in, and in Alberta generally is that um, we rely on uh, Service Alberta records. So anybody who has a driver's license, anybody who has applied for a marriage license, anyone who has had any interactions with Service Alberta, I believe it is, with Alberta registries generally, that's the, that's the repository, that's the, that's the source of names. That's where we get the names for the jury panel. Um, the thinking behind that, as I understand it, as it's been explained to by, as it's been explained to me, to me by those who work in the criminal section at the Court of King's Bench, is that um, the the idea is that this will cut across um, uh, the socioeconomic, racial. Um, and other uh, lines that um, could potentially um, um, uh, skew the individuals who are selected uh, for the for the jury panel from which jury selection um, is made. I'm sure it's not perfect, um, but it seems to me that it's a better system than, for example, relying on municipal. Uh, 
property tax rolls, which would only capture people who owned property in the city of Calgary and thereby exclude um, anybody who's renting, anyone who's homeless. So that's the way that we choose jury panels. And um, the thinking is that that, that, is a very, that, that that will capture a very broad cross-section of the community and hopefully eliminate um, the, um, the problems that, that you alluded to, uh, Emily, in your question. Right. So it's, I'm assuming the goal is to get as broad of a, of a selection pot as possible. Um, I I found it interesting because when we were researching in Ontario, jurors are selected based on like a property assessment list. So like students, elderly, those with low economic status are immediately eliminated from the beginning. So uh, why do you think provinces have these different approaches? Is it based on the provinces themselves or is it just because? It is. Just cause? <laughs> it, each province is given the obligation to administer the duties uh, and constitutional obligations. And so I can't speak to how one province executes those duties over another, but that's why you see the differences is because it is not federally uh, micromanaged in that sense. The same duty is given to all provinces and it's for them to determine how to administer that. Interesting when the Canadian government website says it's a part of citizenship then, huh? (laughs) Well, like many other things um, that exist uh, in our our federal system is that we have broader federal powers that the provinces are then given control over the administration of the the broader rights. And so it is a partnership in that sense um, that the... Ultimately, uh, if there is a question as to whether any individual province is failing to meet those obligations, that there's process for that to be determined. Good to hear there's a backup plan. (laughs) Uh, So, Judge, going back to what you said earlier about, um, you know, being sympathetic to jurors and that story you said about the ones who were visibly upset, Uh, some people who have served as jurors say that they have developmental illnesses such as PTSD. Um, Could you go into a bit more details? What resources are available to them? Um, There are are some resources that are available. I believe that Alberta was the first province to uh, um, introduce um, state-funded counseling uh, services for jurors once they'd completed their uh, jury duty. And we hand out a pamphlet, and we have for many, many years, to jurors at the beginning of the trial, uh, providing them with the contact information where they can access um, um, free counseling. Now, it's not unlimited, uh, I'm afraid to say, but I believe you can get uh, three, four, five sessions with a counselor that um, the province of Alberta will assume the the cost of um, if you believe that uh, service on a jury has had an adverse impact on your on your mental health. Um, I'm happy to say that um, it's a practice that's been adopted in a number of other provinces. Um, uh, as a result, I suspect of our, our growing understanding about the impact of of jury service on the mental well-being of 
people who undertake that responsibility, um, and the Senate committee that looked at jury service, that was certainly one of their strong recommendations that we needed to acknowledge and address um, some of the impact of jury service on the individuals who are called upon to fulfill that responsibility. Mm-hmm. Do you believe that, considering how long it's been around, do you believe that it's it should change if what is provided is enough? Well, unfortunately, I just don't know. Um, and I wish we did know, but juries, they they come together. They generally don't know one another. They perform their function and um, then they separate, and I, we have no idea. We don't, we don't track them. Maybe we should track them. Maybe we should follow up with jurors to, uh, six months, a year after they've served on a case, um, perhaps a particularly difficult case, and, um, and interview them and find out whether or not um, the experience had a had an, an adverse impact on them and how they've uh, they've addressed that impact because I mean armed with that information we might well make some different decisions government might well make some different decisions about how we support um, jurors after the fact anecdotally I, I mean I can tell you that I did a really really difficult jury trial here about I don't know five or six, seven years ago. Um, and I know because the jurors invited me, they they met frequently after the case was over. Um, uh, I, I suspect and I believe um, uh, to support one another. Um, I was tempted to go, but I decided that it probably wasn't a good idea, that that was their process and um, I really needed to respect Notwithstanding their very kind invitation, um, I really needed to respect their autonomy and that this is something they needed to do without any influence by me. But it's a, it's these are really important questions that you're asking, and I uh, I hope that we have uh, some better answers as uh, we develop a better understanding about um, what what goes into. Uh, jury service on a very human level. I mean, what's the impact on people of having to sit and listen often to some pretty horrendous evidence? What's the impact on them in the long term? Right. I was actually going to ask that, but you already answered my question, but whether or not judges can be involved in, you know, meeting up with the jury after a certain amount of time, after a certain difficult trial. But I, I guess you can. I didn't know. Well, I don't. I don't know. I've never done it. I mean, I I always meet with the jury after the case is over, and I know that I'm I'm, I'm one of a f- few people who do that. Most judges don't. I respect that they think it's not an appropriate thing to do. I I happen to think that it is. I think it's a way of us uh, showing that we understand what they've been through, um, and to uh, thank them. And to give them a pat on the back and and lead them uh, to resources that are available to them if they feel the need, and to let them know that they may feel fine today, but next week, next month, six months from now, they may wake up one morning and they might realize that no, they actually aren't okay, and that um, that's okay. That that's 
uh, an appropriate response. There's nothing wrong with it, but they should do something about it. So I've never I've never followed up with uh, with a jury. I've only ever been asked once to to go and meet in a bar with the jury after the fact. I just didn't think that was the right thing for me to do. <laughs> That's kind of them to extend the invitation. It was very kind. <laughs> how did they how did they contact you? Was that right after the trial? Oh, or? people are very clever at contacting judges <laughs> oh. when they want to. Um, they they phone you up. Uh, I mean, I don't they don't speak to me, but um, I mean, email is a great leveler and people do get a hold of your email and and uh, we get email f- directly from people all the time. And I'm I don't have a problem with that, not generally. But they phone your office or they phone your assistant and they'll let you know or they'll send you a note or something. No, I was very touched actually that, that they asked. Um, and it was, a, it was a horrendous case that they were involved in. So I had a lot of empathy for them. It, it certainly had a profound impact on me. So I, I certainly got it. Mm-hmm. And I'm very glad that I, uh, the group of jurors met up because mm-hmm. what, during my research, what I found was that be- because after the trial, they're legally not allowed to talk about their experiences with other people. So they need each other to go through the post-trial, I guess, um, recovery together. They need to talk about it with someone. But I don't know, Jennifer, I mean, you obviously don't uh, have the same opportunity that I would have. Mm -hmm. Um, But... Um, doing a difficult trial would have an impact on you too. Mm -hmm. Um, It's not as if the fact that you and I do this kind of work every day means that it doesn't have an impact on us. No, absolutely. And it it has a cumulative effect as well. So not only an individual case. um, And I think that for all participants having a balanced lifestyle where there is something beyond the work that we do in the courtroom is critical um, and that the attention to mental well-being is something that should be considered seriously through all that are involved because um, it does have an impact on our ability to do our job. One of the things that I was thinking about Uh, listening to the conversation is the role that lawyers can have, though, in limiting the information that goes before the jury. And I would suggest a judge to, if, for example, the cause of death is not an issue in a homicide trial, why do you need 50 gruesome photos of the deceased victim? Because a judge and a jury are supposed to approach these things without uh, inflaming the emotion, right? They're they're supposed to uh, assess the facts and apply that to the law, not be emotionally moved by photos such that they will come to a decision based on emotion rather than logic and reason. So when you understand that that's the approach, then Lawyers involved in presenting the evidence, I suggest, have a higher obligation to only put forward the evidence that is necessary for determining those issues. And that 
That can be done through agreed statement of facts. That can be done through a single photo and maybe the least gruesome, not the most gruesome photo. And I don't think that that is being taken seriously enough. It's a great point. And um, I'm happy to say that there are lots of lawyers uh, like Jennifer who uh, take the same view. And um, I'm been very fortunate to have been involved in, in jury trials where before I even walked in the room to talk to the lawyers, the lawyers have gone through the gruesome photographs and eliminated things that weren't necessary. And Jennifer's absolutely right. It is a big thing uh, that lawyers can do um, and judges can do to try and uh, limit um, the, um, the, uh, the difficult evidence that has to be placed in front of uh, the jury. Um, and I do believe that uh, when we all do our job as best we can, we can make it better. We can't eliminate it, but we can certainly make it better. Uh, to judge, so in a jury trial, um, you mentioned earlier the role of a judge is seen having the responsibility of re- interpreting the appropriate law and instructing, instructing the jury accordingly, and the role of the jury is to find facts. Right. So considering your role, how do you ensure that this is done properly? Good question. Um, I see my role in a jury trial as um, being um, uh, a couple of things. One, I'm there to manage the process, to make sure that the logistics of the process unfold in a, uh, in a reasonable fashion, that we don't waste the jury's time, that um, we start on time, that we finish on time, that we don't uh, send them out of the room for legal argument for unnecessarily lengthy periods of time if it's not required, and um, that um, they are properly fed and watered, that they are looked after, their physical needs are met. I spend a lot of time in a jury trial watching the jury, watching their their facial expressions, their body language, um, to make sure that they're okay. And sometimes they're not, and they're reluctant to uh, bring um, a problem they're having to your attention. So you have to sort of search them out. Um, I also have to be, I'm also responsible for making sure that the evidence is coming forward in an orderly fashion. So there's a logistical role. Um, There's the role that we've already talked about in some detail, and that is about instructing them Um, on the law. And so at the beginning of the trial, uh, uh, judges will give a preliminary set of instructions to a jury to let them know uh, some general rules that they need to apply as they get ready to hear the evidence. In a similar fashion, um, we ask the Crown, and if the defense elects to call evidence, the defense, to give an opening address to give them an overview of the evidence that is expected to be called so that before th- that they are bombarded with evidence from witnesses, they've got a framework 
or a general understanding of, of what the Crown is, is hoping to prove. Conversely, if the defence calls evidence, what the defence is hoping to establish through its witnesses. So we try and give them some some tools to help them with um, the process. Um, but at the end of the day, um, we rely on their, Jennifer's already alluded to this a couple of times, we rely on their life experience and their common sense to apply um, the law that I give them um, to the facts as they find them. I mean, there's often conflict in the evidence and somebody has to decide what happened. Jurors are perfectly equipped and, and able to do that. It doesn't require any special training or, or understanding of the law to do that. And so we believe, I believe, that um, a properly instructed jury, uh, given the legal instructions that they require to put the, the facts in context, can answer the questions that they need to answer. The only other thing I will say, and I, and I forgot to mention this, so I instruct them at the beginning, I instruct them at the end, and I instruct them during the course of the trial if something comes up that I believe that I need to bring their immediate attention to. If they've heard something that they shouldn't have heard, um, I will instruct them to disregard that evidence. If they've heard evidence that is for uh, that is admissible for a limited purpose, that 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 they need uh, an explanation uh, about, uh, so that they don't go away having heard the evidence and jumping to conclusions that the law doesn't allow them to do. So to again to provide them with a, a con- an immediate context, so that that immediately after they've heard the evidence or immediately before they're about to hear the evidence, they understand what they can do with the evidence that they're about to hear or have just heard. So in a in a general way, that's what that's how I would describe what what the role of a judge is in a jury trial and the steps that we take. Uh, to ensure that they are given uh, the tools that they require in order to make the decisions they're required to make um, in coming to a verdict. Mm-hmm. It seems like a very sophisticated um, job that you have to constantly do from start to finish. Then what's the most difficult part of your role? I am always worried that um, my explanation is too complicated. And um, the way that the law has evolved on jury instructions, what we're, what we're required to say, what we're, re- what we're told we can't say, that it has become a very, a bit of a minefield. And it's, um, I often wonder whether or not we've overly complicated um, the process um, and actually thereby made it more difficult for jurors. Um, Fortunately, in my experience, they mainly get it right. I mean, based on my legal knowledge, my legal understanding, I can only think of one or two cases in my entire legal career where I thought a jury came to the wrong conclusion. Sometimes I I wasn't happy with the conclusion as a lawyer, but I generally could understand how they could get there. 
Um, I mean, in, in my view, juries do a very good job of, of filtering through uh, that massive information that we place in front of them um, and come up with the right result, generally speaking. So it's, it, 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 it is a complicated process. I worry that it, we've made it more complicated than we should have and that we really should be moving in the other direction and trying to simplify it. Um, but I'm at the end of my, coming to the end of my judicial career, I'm not at the beginning, and I may be swimming against the tide on that one. You're listening to the Hearsay Podcast. We are proud to present you with legal information, but please remember that this is legal information, not legal advice. If you require legal advice, please consult a lawyer. The Hearsay Podcast is a joint project between CJSW 90.9 FM and Pro Bono Students Canada, University of Calgary Chapter. If you would like to hear more podcasts like this, the Hearsay Podcast can be found on Google Podcasts, Apple Music, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.